Welcome to Never Before. I'm your host, Janet Mock. We all know the Oscars has been a pretty problematic space the past few years with little recognition for movies featuring actors of color. But this year's ceremony gave us something to celebrate as Moonlight snatched three trophies in all of our wigs, including Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. My guest this week, Terrell Alvin McCraney, yes, he's a genius, stormed the Oscar stage alongside director Barry Jenkins to deliver this monumental moment. This goes out to all those black and brown boys and girls and non-gender conforming who don't see themselves, we're trying to show you, you and us. So thank you, thank you, this is for you. For those who haven't seen Moonlight, I will try my best not to shoot you a side eye. It follows a young black boy named Chiron in Liberty City, Miami. He lives with his single mother, a woman struggling with drug dependency, just as Chiron is coming to terms with his gender and sexual identity. The film was adapted from an unpublished play written by Terrell based on his own experiences in that same black Miami neighborhood. Though Liberty City didn't have many resources, it did expose a young Terrell to the arts, which shifted the trajectory of his life. The queer black boy from the hood went on to earn his MFA from the Yale School of Drama, where he was mentored by Pulitzer Prize winning playwright August Wilson. He also received the uber prestigious MacArthur Genius Fellowship in 2013 for, quote, imbuing the lives of ordinary black people with epic significance. In our conversation, Terrell and I discuss his relationship with Wilson, that infamous Oscars night mix-up with La La Land, and what it's like to slay every damn award stage. Thank you so much, Terrell, for joining us on Never Before. We're so happy to have you. Thanks for having me. You know, so many things have happened in the past few months for you that it must seem so intense in a sense of all of your great accomplishments from obviously your historic Oscars win to your MacArthur geniusness. And I heard you say in one of your interviews that as you've basked in these well-deserved accolades, that there was a voice in the back of your head telling you to be careful and to understand how you got to the point where you sometimes can't trust the things in your life. And when you said that, I immediately thought of my own sense of like survivor's guilt and um, imposter syndrome. And I wonder, have you been able to trust through this process? Well, I think the the understanding of trust is is very key in that question, right? It depends on what we put our trust in. I trust that life is chaotic. <laughs> I don't feel like an imposter. I feel like myself, but I also know that storms will come. Mm. That just because at some point we worked our way up and found an Academy Award at the end of the rainbow doesn't mean that, you know, now some hurricane's going to come and destroy my house. Mm. The impulse to write in Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue came from that uh, learning of that pattern and and the unlearning of it, the trying to unlearn that pattern which has more to do with the fact that, you know, I thought life was good at one point, and then all of a sudden this man who was very good to me and I felt like I had a father figure in my life who I could trust disappeared. That was at six, so that to me became a timestamp in order to sort of see forward what life could be like. 
you know, in your Oscars acceptance speech for Best Adapted Screenplay, you thanked your mother. Thank God for my mother who proved to me through her struggles and the struggles that Naomi Harris portrayed for all of you that we can really be here and be somebody. Two boys from Liberty City up here on this stage representing 305. I grew up with a father who struggled with drug addiction around the same time period in the 80s um, in Oakland, California. And I'm very sensitive to how the media has often talked about your mother in the frame of her addiction, which is a facet and a part of her life journey and struggle, right? And of course, she has so much more than those struggles. Would you mind telling me a bit about her? You know, I know that you mentioned that she loved books and that she made you become serious about schoolwork. And how has she influenced you? Well, I mean, I could talk for days about how she has influenced me. I mean, think, you know, the fact that I can call myself an artist now means that in my work I can look back over some things. Throughout, you can you constantly are seeing different reflections and refractions of my mother. Uh, and in Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue was written, you know, when I was 22 years old and, and really suffering and mourning, dealing with some pretty negative feelings, not towards my mother, but about life in general, and wanted to try to piece out the sort of hurt that lay between us. And I think one of the things that Barry did so excellent well is that he sort of allowed me to really see the transition from how my mother was to what that battle with addiction looked like to her coming out of the other side trying to make a life for herself, mm-hmm. which to me is a narrative that is often missed with women of color, particularly in canons of work. You know, I, I chastise myself all the time about not being as specific about that journey because it's important to me to know she's not going to go to the church and they're going to get prayed over and then all of a sudden this addiction goes away. There's a struggle Mm. that takes its toll on lives and the emotionality of her life afterwards. I mean, she, she never stopped saying how sorry she was for that. And then the guilt of that often led to relapse, right? So the guilt of not being able to kick the thing in in the first place sort of led to, you know, moments of, well, I, I can't, be here and present because the grief of it is so hard, you know. And so I think for me, I just watched a person truly, truly always comparing her her worst self to her best self. Hmm. And I look at that and always sort of think to myself, ah, I see what that can do. Because whatever that is, I have that gene. I compare my worst self, me at my absolute worst, my hungry, my tired, my no patience, my shame, my shyness, to my generosity, my charismatic, my eloquence, my all of those things are always in contention with each other. Mm. I only learned that from seeing a person who was trying to let good win and know that I am all I am just as good even in my faulted moments. In Moonlight Black Boys Look Blue, it came out of the sense of this urgency you had after your mother was sick and you had this urgency to write about your childhood because you knew that these memories that were so visceral and so vital to your becoming and your knowing and your living would eventually fade, especially once she was she was gone. For you, did you have any trepidation about sharing these personal childhood experiences publicly? Certainly not while writing the script, no. I think the only time I ever had trepidation was well after it was already exposed to the world. <laughs> it was too late by the time I sort of, <laughs> sort of went, oh, maybe I shouldn't have talked about that. So I sort of had to quickly get over myself. 
which was easy because, again, the stories that were pouring forward from people weren't like, oh, you know, well, every now and then you would get one person who would be like, oh, this is such an important story. And I'd be like, I want to punch you in the face. <laughs> because, you know, it was, it was clearly like they didn't feel anything about it, but they knew it was important in terms of some boxes to tick. And I was like, well, cool, back up off me. But then there were people who literally, you know, were sobbing and saying that they had found a way to talk about the hard parts about their life. Know that, you know, straight men who were like, well, I was bullied for being gay as a kid, even though I wasn't gay. And so I knew what that kid felt like. And I still walk away with those same scars, even though I don't identify as queer or gay in, in my adult life. Um, I walk away with those same scars. I walk away with that same trepidation or, you know, women who said, you know, I, I now know what my children's lives were like while I was suffering from addiction. You know, it just... Those things just made me feel like, well, you know, you get over, you have to get over yourself because this is the point. The point is so that we can all sort of sit by the fire and pass around the fact that we, you know, we, we endured or we got over or we went through together. And I thank, you know, all the people who, who did share those stories or continue to share those stories or continue to come forward and talk about those things because it hasn't stopped. I wonder for you, what are the tools that you have for yourself as you're out in the world talking about this work that is personal, but it's obviously adapted. It's not just your experience. It is also Barry's experience and all the other collaborators that come in and built this film. But for that to be the most known piece of your life, um, how do you protect yourself as you're sharing that? Essentially, in the in the off, again, there are moments that I didn't know were sort of dear to me. So, you know, the loss of Blue, the mm-hmm. Juan character, I didn't know how raw it was to me. Mm-hmm. And so I literally just had to take a break. <laughs> I had to, like, stop and, <laughs> and, and figure out my feelings around it, which was, to be fair, the only part that took me by surprise. To be 100% transparent, which it should never be over the radio, <laughs> I've always been in the business of shock and awe. So I sort of, I've always been like, here, I'll tell you something that I know you think is salacious and amazing and terrifying and, you know, grief-stricken in order for me to really slip in a little gem of something that's important over here. And so in my work, people always talk about the things that are most ostentatious, you know. Oh, did you and Kevin really kiss? Did your mom really you know, make you give up money for her to go do drugs. And I'm like, <laughs> you guys are always focusing on the easy stuff. The hard stuff is when you come home and then the person you thought of as your dad is gone. Or the hard part is when you think back over the time that someone who just kissed you for the first time also punched you in front of everybody. But it's human nature. Human, The, the eye goes to the thing that's most flashy. So for me, most people don't <laughs> don't sort of center on the things that are really vulnerable to me, even in my plays. They sort of go for these things that are sort of heightened in a way. When I go see the plays, I'm like, oh, there's that really vulnerable thing that I needed to work out that I did in the work and nobody's talking about, right? <laughs> so um, sometimes I feel like a trickster in that way, which is fine too. <laughs> so that's how, I, that's how I've always worked on it. And, and again, if you allow people to lead the conversation, they inevitably reveal more about them than they do about you. I find that to be true as well. And your first exposure to the arts was through these fantastic free arts programs, which are targeted to kids from poor families in Miami, because you were able to take ballet and learn acting technique and writing as a young person. Is that infrastructure still there being supported by the government or philanthropy? 
Yes, the African Heritage Cultural Arts Center is the very same place where I was exposed for the very first time wow. to plays, to acting, to dance class. In fact, uh, the other day, uh, they named Moonlight Way the street right behind the African Heritage Cultural Arts Center, which was really thrilling. But was what was sort of astounding to me was my first dance teacher was there, and he he sort of you know asked me to sign a program, which was like, you know, I hadn't seen him in almost 18 years. So the fact that that community is still there and thrives is is amazing. I mean, he doesn't teach at the program anymore, but you know, the fact that he still has roots there. And I know he he probably was like, well, I'm glad you didn't go into dance because you totally were a terrible dancer which i which is true um but i think it, i think it's important again that you know the community recognizes that you know there are other people who graduated from that program who had their first exposure at that program robert battle the artistic director of the alvin ailey american mm-hmm. dance theater and even the ones who are not artists right we've got lawyers who came out of there doctors who came out of there mm-hmm. um and i think it's just important to remember what the program is doing it yes it's nurturing young artists and storytellers but in a community what's important is empathy and that place is teaching our lawyers empathy that place is teaching our uh, our doctors how to be in contact with the people who they care for and to put themselves in their shoes. Mm. That's the lifeblood of a community. And in, in this current cultural and political environment, it seems that, you know, the slashing of the NEA and all of these other programs, there seems to be this sense of like this attack even on just say like PBS, right? Mm-hmm. How do you push back against a sense of like, Art doesn't matter. We don't need people, you know, specifically poor people and brown and black folks sitting around creating works, right? Like, that's not important. This sense of this kind of cultural monologue that has been going on for a long time, because the first thing that happens in public programs, specifically in schools, is that they slash the arts and music programs. And I know for me, as someone who grew up as a band geek, even though I'm not a musician, um, it was vital to my sense of expressing myself um, to have access to those programs. And so for you, as someone that is this bastion of geniusness, I just love saying that. How are you pushing back and resisting against this sense of this slashing? Well, I'm glad somebody thinks I'm a genius. I don't think about it quite often. <laughs> In fact, that's one of the things I say more often than not, which is that I was a kid who got very lucky. <laughs> and the fact that these programs were there to catch a kid who could have fallen through uh, and I don't mean that the programs themselves saved lives, that they gave me opportunity to save my life. Mm-hmm. Barry and I grew up three blocks away from each other. And if you look through Moonlight or look through our past, um, there are so many similarities, even in the notions of being surrounded by the opportunity to become a drug dealer, to fall into some other you know, stereotypical tropes that we, we think and talk about, to allow poverty to overcome our dreams or our scope was easy. What was harder was to have to look for other opportunities or to be or to be shown other opportunities. And so here are two men who've never met each other, who are eight months apart, nine months apart in Mm -hmm. age, and yet had to really seek out and find and were lucky to find those opportunities. So does it say that we were special? I don't think so. I think what it says is that there were a lot of us. And we were the ones who found a way, who were shown something and found a way out. If my mother uh, died of AIDS-related complications and Barry's mother was an addict also and and, and living with the the virus, and we lived in a proximity of three blocks away from each other, tell me that the statistics don't show that probably more young men and young women were enduring the same kind of childhood. Mm. And what if they were shown other opportunities than the ones that were just next door, near? 
you spoke about being the only black playwright in the program when you're getting your MFA. And that was part of the reason why you worked as an assistant to the late playwright August Wilson, who forged ground, of course, in exploring black masculinity in his plays. How did it feel for you, for Fences, one of his great works, and Moonlight, to be considered in the same category for both Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay, and for you to actually win in those categories? It's interesting. I mean, I, I saw Constanza, August Wilson's widow, right before the Academy Awards, and I I saw her, and I was so excited, and I mm. I gave her a big hug, and instantly remembered the time that I had spent with August and the fact that he bought me my first iPod. Wait, what? He tricked me. <laughs> he said, "I need you to go buy me one of those iPods because my daughter's birthday is coming up. I know you don't have one, and I know." that they're real popular among the kids. <laughs> I thought, okay. <laughs> so I was just like, what do you want? He's like, well, I just want an iPod so I can put, you know, some good songs on it for her to listen to. And I said, okay, great. Well, you know, I have class, so <laughs> it'd be great if you just let me <laughs> finish class and, and I'll go do whatever you want me to do. And he said, no, nah, I need it right now. I need it soon because, you know, I want to surprise her. And so I'm like, this man wants me to skip class to go get him an iPod. Like, August is really trying it today. <laughs> And so, again, this was back even, you know, at a time where iPods, I didn't know how much they cost. And he gave me an envelope full of 20s. I, like, scammed one of my friends in the playwriting program to go to Orange, which is not an easy drive from New Haven. Anyway, we went to Best Buy, and I I said, I want the biggest iPod you have, like the biggest, most memory, everything that comes with it, like everything, because I don't want to have to come back here. And the guy was like, do you want a warranty? I was like, absolutely. Warranties, you name it, put it on it. So I got this big iPod that did ended up end up costing about $500. And I marched back to August and I put it in front of him and I went to class. And then he texted me being like, hey, I need you to come back. There's something about this iPod. And I was like, man, look, <laughs> I know you, you know, you are in the middle of writing the last of your your great plays, but you can't be running me. I got to go write my plays too, sir. Um, <laughs> but I came back to the restaurant and he's sitting outside and it was cold. You know, it's New Haven. He has me sit down and he says, you always need music. You know, mm. whatever you do, you have to have music. Mm. And this is for your music. And then he gave me back the iPod. And I'm in tears because I've been pissed off all day, <laughs> like mad. Mm. Um, and then when I got back to New Haven, uh, in the fall, he had died. Oh, wow. It had nothing to do with pedagogy. It had nothing to do with, like, this is how you create your work or, you know, these are the things you need to do. It had more to do with mentorship. It had more to do with generosity of spirit. He was passing on something intangible in a way, even though he passed on something tangible. Hmm. You know, he couldn't hand me rhythm, but he was handing me rhythm. You know, talking about and revisiting uh, Moonlight's triumph with the Best Picture debacle at the Academy Awards. <laughs> guys, guys, I'm sorry. No, there's a, this, there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. This is not a joke. Come this on. is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. This is not a joke. Moonlight has won Best Picture. Moonlight. Best picture. When the presenters, as we all know now, accidentally called La La Land as the winner, when in fact Moonlight was the victor. As you're sitting in the audience, what are you thinking as this is going on? Is there is it was it just a big mass of confusion? 
What was your play-by-play from your point of view in the audience? I wish I could tell you. To be fair, I don't. <laughs> and I know people are like, "Well, please tell us the play-by-play." I was like, it happened really fast and really confusingly. So, you know, if you look back at the footage, you get everything you need from the very, especially from my face, which is like, "What? What? <laughs> yeah, know? like the whole thing is like, <laughs> what? What's happening?" Because we were sitting there, literally, Barry and I just stood up and clapped for La La Land and had sat back down and we're thinking, "Okay, great, we got Oscars, which is dope." Just very happy. <laughs> <laughs> just very happy to be like, we're walking out of here with gold statues. What else do we need to really talk about? And then the quiet that kind of happened and the kind of scattering that was happening, something definitely was up and odd on stage. And, you know, me being from Liberty City, the first thing I thought was, okay, something, there's danger. Hmm. The security breach has happened. That's what I thought too, watching. Yeah, and you, absolutely. I'm <laughs> like, no, there's danger happening. This is, the, you know, there have been some very not great conversations happening around this political and this season. There's something, there's a threat somewhere and we need to, you know, scatter or, you know, get people to safety. I was like sitting behind Mark Rylance and I was like, he's a national treasure. We have to get him to safety, you know, (laughs) sort of like. But then when when they did call us, we were like, wait, is this, are we being punked? Like what's happening? And that's why you watch us slowly but surely congregate on the stage because I think everybody's sort of going, at what moment are we going to get, you know, at what moment is this chaos going to be framed by us not being the winners, (laughs) you know? After that, I've been piecing out the moments with my thoughts since. Just the other day I walked out, I was like, wow, that happened. That happened, happened in front of people with me, happened. I walked on stage and... You know, (laughs) and I walked off and walked around to do press. And we were all in the state. I mean, the first press that we did after that was with Anthony Hamilton. And he was, you know, himself. And we were just sort of sitting there kind of ghostly staring around going, wait, when is it all? When is it all, you know, crash in? So I don't know. I again, I sort of went great, guys, if we move over very fast and take these things with us, they can't take it from us. So and I get on a plane in like five hours. So they're not going to make us, you know, come back and do it again. So let's just go. <laughs> let's like Get out of Dodge. <laughs> you know, Barry once said, and I love when he said this, I think I wrote this on my vision board. He goes, there is no code switching in this film. And it made me think so much about the amount of code switching that we have to do to survive, especially when we don't come from spaces that are often reflecting us or that are catered toward us, our own very own survival. And what was that transition like for you to go from your home in Liberty City to the academic and theater world of extremely white spaces like DePaul and Yale? Mm, I mean, I had already uh, been versed in code switching (laughs) because I was a kid that was bullied, people would say to me, literally, oh, you're not like the rest of them. You know, you're smart. You know how to say words with I-N-Gs. You know how to put T's on the ends of your consonants. You can say would. You know, those things set you apart. And what they really did was isolate me further, Mm. you know, from my community. They really were teaching me, hey, these things make you more closer to whiteness. And in truth, they don't at all makes me just speaking so that I can be understood to, you know, supremacy. And then what will happen is you'll find yourself in those white spaces and then look around and realize, ah, (laughs) I have not been extended a seat at the table, or at least I have not extended the, the same meat at the table. I'm just near. At no point am I being allowed access. I'm just here to witness. 
And once you realize that, you go, oh, it's a, it's a trick. <laughs> it's, a, it's a further a trick to make you think or feel a way about the very place that, you know, gave you life. That learning process is actually, it actually was a, a flip. I was there going, cool. Even though I'm going to fix my grammar and or my my speech or maneuver my way so that I can I can sort of ride this line of, of double consciousness, I'm also going to learn everything I can about where I come from and its history, its cultural uh, cachet. Mm. I'm also going to steep myself in a way that somehow I'll be able to relearn how not to you know always speak proper English or grammar all the time. Um, and that was conscious. I was like, I don't need this. It doesn't that proper grammar, English, speaking that way, surviving that way, walking in a certain way. I, my voice would hurt because I would be in these environments talking like this all the time, trying to make people <laughs> feel comfortable. Because if you talk up here, then everybody mm-hmm. feels, you know, excited and accessible. But when you talk down here into the actually where my voice sits, it's aggressive. It's you know scary. You're an angry black man for some reason, and it just they became crazy. It became insane. <laughs> so I have been training and reteaching myself and relearning myself about my own cultural mores. Where do I actually come from? Who, you know, I'm from Liberty City, whether Liberty City likes it or not. What are our standard bearers there? What do we hold dear? And can I hope to hold dear there? Um, and so that's what those privileged white institutions taught me, to be fair. It taught me that, you know, no matter how high you climb, you will never be fully accepted. And you can fight for that. Maybe that's something to fight for. And those who do fight for that full acceptance, I you know, nod to them. I appreciate them. But while you're all fighting for that acceptance, your community is perishing and is being left defenseless. And I, I just can't abide by that. And so what does life look like for you now? I know that you're about to embark on a new role at Yale. And so are you readying for that? Is this the calm before the next storm of another process of diving deep into new work? What does it look like for you right now? Well, luckily for me, they invited me to begin at least the admissions process uh, in January or December. So I started reading applications then. So that was the great part about being there, which was, Mm -hmm. you know, I could... I could uh, get on the plane after the Academy Awards and spend the six-hour flight, five-hour flight reading applications and then starting interviews the next day. So I didn't really have time to think about anything other than, great, this happened, and now I must find three students to fill the slot um, for our next our next class. What does it feel like to be, you know, obviously before you were creating applications, you are creating your own applications and work for submissions, and now you're on the other end of being one of the people that are either letting someone in or not letting them in? The responsibility is large. You know, I feel a great sense of responsibility. I also feel um, it's a key time to do it right now Um, instead of, you know, lots of people are like, well, why don't you wait until you're closer to an age of retirement? And I think, well, wouldn't that put me in a further distance? I won't know the struggle that um, that my cohorts are actually enduring. I want to work with these young artists, um, these early career artists, at a point where I am making a shift in my career to focus more on the intimate writing that I want to do. I want to make a shift and be their advocate rather than wait until, you know, <laughs> I sort of have some larger body of work, I guess. And besides, I think no more than now that do you know, does my community need me to advocate uh, its artists to return home in a way. Um, and I feel like a lot of mentors and and arts advocates are often trying to get early career writers to focus on becoming the next big splash. And I, I do 
have that longing, but my splash is in their own backyard. I really want artists to focus on, you know, the communities that they come from and want to speak to. So for me, being back at New Haven is a lot about that. It always felt like the thing that I learned the most from the professors, August, Lynn Nottage, was about how to be a mentor. It had less to do with telling you how to write a play and more to do with just giving you space and time and a platform. Well, I think that was a beautiful way of of ending our conversation. I thank you so much, Terrell, for your time, your work. Um, you are, you know, I know that the, the focus of your work has not been solely to be an inspiration, but I, I think so much about how this one film, one work from you, um, though you have so many others, will likely catch so many other um, young folk or just folk, period, who are yearning to see themselves and to feel themselves, not just on screen, but in the world. So I just want to thank you for that as well. Oh, thank you. And thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Never Before is a product of Pineapple Street Media and Lenny Letter. It was produced by Jenna Weiss-Berman, Ricky Novetsky, Josh Gwynn, Liz Watson, and Barry Finkel. Our executive producer is Lena Dunham. Special thanks to Max Linsky and Ben Cooley. Our music is by Hans Del Sue. Now here's Lena Dunham, my executive producer, to give you a little hint about next week's guest. Change the game for so many women. Still keeps it light, even though she's been through a lot of hard stuff. Very fresh to death. If you've enjoyed our show, please subscribe to it and rate it on Apple Podcast. It really helps us elevate the show and gets more people listening to us and obviously ranking us because we want to be your fave. So go to it. That's it. (laughs) Bye-bye.